Welcome to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. Our guests today are Nancy Pop and Hugo Hopping. Nancy Pop is a Los Angeles-based artist who creates performances, videos, drawings, and photographs. Her work draws upon the rich traditions of durational, corporeal performance, and political intervention to explore the relations between body and sight, often incorporating public and architectural spaces. In terms of gentrification and investment in communities and how that's perceived and how it's seen and who it serves, I mean, this is a really interesting kind of nut that I want to explore and what, and through my practice as well as, you know, um, as working on the ground with communities. Hugo Hopping is an artist from Los Angeles currently based in Copenhagen, Denmark. There, he is a coordinator for The Winter Office, a work group comprised of architects, urban planners, social scientists, and visual artists. What's been happening with like recent and trends in global architecture is that fundamentally is that the relationship of the body to the infrastructure, to the building, is sort of changing. So if a city, if a city like Los Angeles got rid of loitering laws and actually encouraged people to actually use public space and dwell in it for as many hours they want, we will be moving towards a more cognitive architecture. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond on Kei Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM, like a broken record, magically repaired. You can listen to The People on the live stream at keichungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org, or you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. There you can find out more about the show. Nancy Pop and Hugo Hopping, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome, guys. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. So let's start. I just want to hear how you guys met. I think you've known each other for a long time, I hear. So tell us the uh, the short story there. I guess I could say my take. Uh, I met Nancy way back at the Armory Center for the Arts in the 90s. She had just finished Art Center, right? Yep. And uh, um, I met her at that time with Edgar Arsenault and a couple of other artists that were in the Pasadena area. Nice. And so I was working as a, as a preparator for the armory, installing shows here and there, and then she was teaching, right? Yeah, I was teaching in the studio programs and in their programs in the Glendale Public School District, and that, yeah, I was there for a while. So it's a lot of good people there then. So, so it's been a long time. It's been a long time. Yeah, 90s. We're, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're starting to, to, to whiff close to the 20-year mark. Yeah, you know, you, yeah. Eight, 17 you're, you're, almost, you're catching up to the Berlin Wall. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, we're a little bit. It little, was like a little behind. It, it was, was like post Reality Bites the movie. You know? <laughs> like, it, 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 it was right into that space, you know. But. For our younger listeners, uh, in the '90s, Ethan Hawke was like a big ketchup. deal. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but. Ugo, you were born in Los Angeles, correct? No, actually, well, my father's from L.A., and my grandfather and great-grandfather, they're all from L.A., but uh, I was born in Mexico City because my parents were out there at that time. So I lived in, in Mexico City for about 10 years, and then we had to come back home and, you know, 
been in LA ever since then. Right, but you're not here now. I mean, you're here now. But. I'm here, I'm currently <laughs> yes, but I, I'm currently taking an LA hiatus. You know, mm-hmm. I'm I'm in uh, Copenhagen, Denmark currently, and I'm doing some projects out there. Based also, you know, I, I got two practices basically. I've been working as uh, as uh, you know as an artist, showing on a very personal level. And at the same time, I got a collaboration project with uh, with a group of architects, and this is called the Winter Office. Tell us about that. Well, um, uh, basically, like uh, uh, I've always have had this surplus of time to work with others and like different projects. So uh, when I w- was in Copenhagen, I kept on meeting all of these architects who were interested in the ideas that I was doing as a conceptual artist. So uh, we began discussing like how to kind of like bridge this intersection that everybody's talking about between art and design and also more specifically conceptual art and conceptual architecture, you know, like how to take that further. And uh, we got really tired of this idea of an intersection. It felt like we were always making an excuse for why we are doing one or the other. So we decided like, fuck it, let's blend it. So the winter office came out of that. And it's basically a, a design firm. Right. And Nancy, your your work is heavily involves architecture as well, correct? Yeah, it's for the last different kinds of architecture, different kinds of urban structures. Um, starting in like the early to mid 2000s, I started freescaling different vertical structures in different cities around the world. And Freescaling being climbing, 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 literally, yeah. without like a climbing rope, with no ropes, mm. with no equipment, just freescaling up. And I was mostly focused on things like light posts, traffic signals, um, and so I'd scale these structures, and it's usually organized pretty guerrilla. But I would occasionally be doing it as part of a formal exhibition with an institution in the place that I was visiting, or where I was staying. So um, we did this, I did this with an artist named Ardu Arzu Kozar as a parallel project for the Istanbul Biennial in 2011. So she had a public intervention and we went there together and worked on setting up our projects in the city. Um, London, Buenos Aires, Zagreb, Belgrade, different places I've been invited and other places I've just had the chance to go. And then while I'm there, I set up a network because it's a very preparatory, heavy project. It seems like a very spontaneous action or doing these urban interventions on architecture, but they take a long, a lot of research and development, a lot of planning, a lot of siting. Um, so the most recent work is that I'm now interested in, my, as an outgrowth, I got interested in construction sites particularly sites that are at a nexus of a neighborhood that's being developed where the site itself is a, an interesting point where different types of resources are coming together and the neighborhood's being transformed as a result of this building going up. So one of the sites that I recently climbed in LA was the Broad Museum on Grand Avenue, right across the street from MoCA that's being constructed by Eli Broad to house his private collection. So what's the conversation that the two of you have been developing around the overlap of conceptual art and architecture? 
I mean, it was funny because I ran into Ugo at a really dear friend's um, screening. Uh, Sandro de la Loza had an amazing screening at the Echo Park Film Center a couple of weeks back. And, and Ugo was there and I was like, what are you doing here, man? I haven't seen you in a while, like maybe a few years. And how long are you here? And so we started a kind of informal conversation. And then we realized really quickly that we our practices had developed to the point where we had a lot of overlap and interest in <clears throat> developing urban planning, development, architecture, both you know in a very formal sense and also in a conceptual sense uh, and in a social sense. So then we we're like, we need to talk. <laughs> so we had a really nice long visit the other day, and hopefully we'll you know get together a few more times while Ugo is in town for the next few weeks. And well, you know how things are in LA. Like you know, you just kind of like in a very organic way begin talking about people's projects. You know, it's like everybody's doing different things, and you kind of cue in on certain things. And she was very specifically talking about these scalings that she was these free scalings that she was doing, and I thought that that was <clears throat> quite interesting from the work that we're doing in Copenhagen. And I was, I was very, you know, right away I keened in on it. And so I was like, you have to show me that work. I want to see it. And uh, it was precisely because it was a way to, from our, my, our perspective, to sort of conceptualize a, a critique of built architecture that's like iconographic or symbolic architecture. And, it, and that it somehow, it's somehow second-guessing the decisions that were made before the building was actually implemented or, or, or in the process of being constructed. So that, that what I saw immediately, what, what Nancy's doing is actually quite urgent and interesting. And then, of course, it, it, it requires a little bit of untapping into the resources that she's doing in the work. But that's what I immediately sort of said, oh, this is really uh, <clears throat> kind of new work from my, from my part because... You, um, when you're planning and going through the whole develop, set of development decisions in design, you uh, are kind of assuming sort of an idea of how this building is done with a very small cabal of people. And here comes Nancy, and then she's interjecting into those group decisions. And that small group isn't necessarily the people that live in the neighborhood or maybe not even necessarily people that are going to use the building. Yeah, right? and then it's also competing uh, ideas because... For example, uh, it could be that that architect that's actually doing the design, the, the environmental and ecological climate in his head is coming precisely, say, without an excuse, out of modernism. And so in Southern California, where we have a really um, wide range of different communities that are you know, contesting these types of uh, modernisms, that you all, all of you seen you see Nancy's practice, and and she's she herself is saying, okay, this is another departure that may have been not considered, and of course from a planning perspective, you start seeing like you know did the volumes need to be placed this way that did did the height of the building have to be this way, and especially in Los Angeles because we have so much horizontal plane mm -hmm. that why is it that we always have to pursue these like larger volumes you know. Case in point, I mean, Rem Coolhouse uh, has had um, a, a difficult time in California, specifically Los Angeles and Long Beach, in actually getting ahead and creating a building. Probably one of the city, only the cities of the world where actually the constituency has kind of more or less rejected his designs, <clears throat> uh, as in the case of LACMA or 
the um, was it a restaurant he was doing in Long Beach at some point way before the LACMA thing? Oh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, you have to look into it. But it was uh, it was right outside of the Queen Mary that we're trying to do a project. I can't remember exactly. Maybe, yeah, maybe it was around the whole redevelopment <clears throat> of the the port area, the like around the aquarium. Yeah, and all of that. That was a that uh, area has been completely redeveloped in the last. Yeah, 10 years. but I mean, it's super interesting. I mean, uh, yeah, of course, you could talk about the Prada stores that he's done. But, you know, and you say, okay, that's architecture. But uh, out of all the architects in the world that that have pursued trying to create projects in Los Angeles is kind of curious. His hasn't actually really come to terms. Mm-hmm. And uh, because, for example, in Copenhagen, the Architecture Center finally went through with a competition designed by OMA. And, and here you have the architect building a brand new architecture center through his office. So it's super interesting to look at it from that perspective. We'll return to our conversation with Nancy Pop and Hugo Hopping in a few minutes. But first, a new installment of Notes from the People, an ongoing project where we invite the people, past, present, and future, to self-produce a short segment for the show. This episode, we'll hear a recording of Todd Collins reading from his newly released book, For God, on Inserblanc Press, at Commonwealth and Council this past November. And the Almighty signaled with a gesture of his hands that life is exactly a succession of moments heralding to the vigilant, ostensibly practicable sites for withdrawal. Angel's brother calls us over the telephone and we're about to go. He's telling us about how he likes to draw pictures of naked ladies and go lie down naked on his tummy in the bathroom to look at them. He's a little pussy boy. He says shit like, don't you know the pills are bad for you? Like if he didn't know it was changing our entire lives around into the way everyone wants. He says shit like if he's all worried about us like a little fucking pussy. Angel says to hang up on him. Angel got some pills from her brother. Angel said her brother wants me to suck it. We don't get home until after dark and Angel's stumbling around giggling and acting like a midget. Angel's skin is like fatty milk. Angel says maybe that little fucker put a picture of her up on the front because she knows Terry always says she'll send a limo over to pick us up sort of like a fucking creepy serial killer. Angel's brother will always be somewhat debilitated by the use of a kind of pathological recourse to exposition, so we can never disclose the cause for even the most apparently unforeseen events, not to mention every event that ever occurs or that seems to occur. And we can never disclose our belief that the totality of what has been conceived of as order or harmonic equilibrium is also a variety of the supernatural, since that is the only belief that keeps our lives normal, decent, and wonderful. PRFC communique number one. The Primordial Resurrectionist Freedom Coalition supports the collective democratic partnership in America in the essence of a romantic desire to eradicate absolute capitalism and its concomitant pervasive narcotizing and unrestrained normalization of insensate vanity and acquisitiveness. However, PRFC does not condone violence. Violence creates fear, resentment, and fantasies of violent retribution. If it can be said to achieve any ends, violence accomplishes only temporarily coerced obedience followed in many cases by escalating forms of retaliation. Violence is in fact counterproductive to any kind of total mind expansion. CDP terror tactics will be eclipsed eventually by a permanent and truly peaceful socio-technological revolution. An organic outgrowth of good vibrations all around, peace, 
In the dark streets was into the spirit of liberty engulfing everything in a dark and blue light. You would just wait in your house and look outside. Then a roaring was coming in the night. You would try to escape out the back through the mossy grass and dampness through the sweet smell of cooling air. Somebody would slip or to go the wrong way. The spirit was coming like a battering ram, smash up the house. You was going out the back, but knowing there weren't no sense in running since any spirit would ever find you anywhere you went. She was always looking for nonverbal signs of tension in the ways they moved their heads, in their gestures, in their eyes, and in their postures. It was fucking ridiculous, but of course the verifier, verifiable correlative to any subjective sensation had long been associated with one of more than a dozen categorical manifestations of the redundancy of the products of cognition in all activity, mental or otherwise, that might even possibly be labeled cognitive. Not that she wasn't aware of her own repulsive desires for expression. <clears throat> because of victory, I have experiences that are ostensibly not real. For instance, my eyes light up at night. In other words, they shine out. We are walking out on the breakwater at Empurias. The sun is down, but the sky is showing blue and light. You can smell the water with the warm air blowing it up and the sounds of the water moving through the rocks and warm waves breaking on the sand. The breezes blow around our faces and ears. It feels so soft and our bodies are silently running. I keep remembering all the times me, Lenore, and America came down here and all the times we lay on top of our sleeping bags by firelight sketching each other's genitals with the carbonized ends of burnt sticks. All the times we helped America's enormous knuckled sunburnt father fold up his fishing nets in the darkening light. His name was Warm Summer Breezes. I always told him his name was so beautiful. He said it wasn't his real name, that his real name was Victory. But he never laughed. He always looked like if he was getting bit by one single ant, like if he was suffering one small, discreet, pitiless pain. He would see us laughing and shake his head. America would laugh at her father's superstitions. The air smelled like gunpowder. America comes up to me with a little knife she keeps worn in a wooden holster on her belt loop. She has placed a sort of bag over her own head with a hole to see. She says I'm sorry, but she really didn't believe it since she believes in equality in a very far-reaching way that weakens the way we mostly habitually think about anything special. She keeps saying the world is collapsing. I say maybe so. I tell her that she will live totally free forever anyways. So she is looking all around at the water and she says that the land is hidden but says it distractedly with a confused urgency. I tell her that her body is extremely beautiful. It turns out that she has a little tiny wiener around one inch long. Our intimate moments are extremely specific and beautiful. There are so many markers in my life that make me remember our intimacy. She says, even in 100 years or more, I'll be able to recall these moments. The 1143 FE 1972 units, the so-called Lazarus series, produced perpetual inboard autochthonous English third-person transcriptions called Experiences Language, EAL. Effectively, the Lazarus units could report a comprehensible, i.e. grammatical, raw data. Units running EL software also displayed a debilitating, apparently parasubjective condition 
whose major symptom can only be described as a profound moribundity. To put it one way, after a couple months operational, the units would start to turn themselves off the second they were powered on, compulsively, you might say, avoiding subjection. Idiosyncrasies of language from eel transcriptions suggest a quality of sentience not anticipated, to say the least, by the eel designers. However, regardless of the finally irrelevant de facto existence of any sort of natural agency that we may locate between the latent language and its application in the production of meaning, or to say it another way, we can we can't ever know for sure whether there's something it's like to be in 1143 FE, but it's probably like something granted conjectures like these, which imply the real presence of a whisper quiet agency that dispassionately constructs a vast tapestry of representations, lies, endless melodrama, feverish highs, and dreary despondency are based on a kind of metaphysical speculativeness and probably a compulsive wish to anthropomorphize. This is the last part. Clarice is standing in this elegant sort of narrow-waisted red and white dress, and her right arm is bent at the elbow, and she holds something upright in her right hand, a smoking cigarette, a short icy glass, a chrome telephone, I don't remember which, and she is looking at me through the lenses of her eyeglasses. She says that she remembers all of it now as if we were caught in the whirlwinds of a hurricane, and she says she didn't hear what I said only looked at me abidingly smiling because it was very loud inside there with all the stuff reverberating over the public address system. It was so romantic. It was all about stuff that supposedly happened in the past, eons ago. But that was years ago before she went practically blind. Neither of us believed in that stuff particularly. At least I didn't. She said to me, I like your body. We had an immediate attraction. She says, okay, so let's not even presuppose states of verifiability. And then she says under her breath, which goes without saying, all of this is admittedly vague. I remember she goes, if we're going to do it, you have to pretend you have amnesia. And her lipstick was crumbling at the edges of her mouth. She kept glancing past me with a slightly worried, expansive tremble in her eyes. Her hands were very large and powerful. I told her something like, I used to think I was an assassin. I mean, I sort of thought I was, but I wasn't 100% sure. I think Clarice is telling me lies. That is not to say that I even need to know what we did, since that is all behind us now. More recently, I have come to be certain that almost nothing ever happens, which is even almost tragic. Now let's return to our conversation with Nancy Pop and Hugo Hopping. So Hugo, the last time I saw you, which is a number of years ago, uh, you had just relocated to Copenhagen and you were starting to investigate some intersections there in design and architecture and your conceptual art practice. But now you have the winter office. Yeah, um, I, 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 I think it's very important to sort of like frame that basically like i'm still even though i'm in copenhagen i'm still working in los angeles like yeah. because all of the laboratory from here is our is kind of created an innovation search space for copenhagen and and that's really kind of created a very interesting sort of uh departure for me so can yeah. you say more you said innovation search space yeah. what is that what do you well it, it, let's just think about it as in terms of like uh, a space in which you can sort of like understand what is it you're doing in terms of artworks 
or actual designs that are innovative or innovation in the sense as to where where they stand you know is it radical innovation or is it just incremental and exploiting the existing condition okay. you know so it, which will be different in Copenhagen versus Los Angeles correct. very different Copenhagen is a very interesting very very interesting city that's gone through the last let's say 15 years of massive redevelopment and reconfiguring and creating a lot of very interesting projects for uh, basically for the nation so um, it, so it's a it's a space of like literal architectural upheaval. Yeah, I mean it's a it's definitely become a digital city in a way that Los Angeles is not. I mean, I mean um, it's a very interesting thing where you you're seeing um kind of like a like almost like a D- DJ session. You're seeing a sampling of every type of modernism that goes into the designs of new typologies. Of buildings and volumes and you know like the city has a really incredible like sort of uh, you know almost like an algorithm in that sense I guess I gotta keep on talking digital because they've even though it's a very old city very old yeah but in this recent period of redevelopment you've you're just seeing incredible building uh, projects being built I'm thinking of other cities around the world that I've done I've heard and done a little research like Hyderabad Santiago Chile mm. Cities that have like very old components, but then are being massively expanded. Right. You know. Well, I mean, uh, to you know, you have to give each country their due. But for example, like Denmark has a, it's one of the very few countries I know that actually has an actual policy to uh, support and export uh, architecture as a knowledge product. Mm-hmm. So you know, the, this is the way that they you know keep the salaries high for the architects, and this is how. Um, the you know Copenhagen you know sort of like it is placed uh, in terms of globalization as like one of the top design cities. So, but that's because the state's in charge in developing, uh, or or the policy helps developing the market for the architect. Whereas, for example, uh, currently in, in just California alone, you you know you have to have a very specific license and bonding process to even be discussing with an architect the idea of new architecture, and this is actually surprising in a neoliberal economy that that, that is a re- regulation you know that that so the, the, so uh, while some architects will argue with me at the same time there's also an argument that like if you created a freer licensing or process or you just finished graduate school and you could practice architecture you would start getting a, a different sort of input into the built environment so but, it's a little more they're just Loosen up, but then again, I mean, you're also talking about like essentially socialist well, uh, system where the state is sponsoring. Well, it's a it's social democrats. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's two somewhat of socialism there, but yeah, so social democrat and uh, um, and the thing is, it's it's uh, complicated because it, at the same time, there's a, also a very specific type of architecture that's 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 currently sort of being supported in the, in the country. So you have to kind of be in that, right. immersed in that, and seeing what is actually coming out from this. But there's a lot of very interesting public works that have really improved like the standard of living of, of neighborhoods in a way that you would ha- argue there that initially was sort of understood as gentrification of like say an older neighborhood mm-hmm. to somewhat that is true, but also the, um, the tremendous amount of, ex- of, of investment that's gone into that has created a, an interesting living condition, for example, the massive investment they've done just on bicycle lanes alone, 
you know. Um, this, this is a really interesting point because, you know, right now what's happening in downtown L.A. is the downtown has been gentrified, been being gentrified by developers in terms of developing these lofts mm-hmm. and condos for the last, I'd say, five years has been sure. a real thrust of it, especially since the moratorium on loft development was lifted, which is about four years ago that, you know, it started a few years before that. But mm-hmm. then there was this moratorium and then it got lifted and it just went insane. Um, but. In terms of gentrification and investment in communities and how that's perceived and how it's seen and who it serves, I mean, this is a really interesting kind of nut that I'm want to explore and what and through my practice as well as you know um, as working on the ground with communities, the bike lane issue in downtown and uh, as you know, bicyclists move into like Boyle Heights or sections of El Sereno and, you know, they're seen as gentrifiers. So it's this, sometimes these conditions that are seen as improvements are actually only improvements for a small number of people or actually kind of a, a bringing an element into the community that's going to force an already established group of people out. So it's, I'm curious about this because I had this amazing conversation with Eva Bromberg, who is a um, a really amazing urban planner came out of UCLA, but also out of Chicago and um, temporary services in Chicago. So she's very, you know, um, politically savvy and um, working with mixed use spaces, development spaces, LA Mart and ATX Crossing. And, um, you know, everyone wants investment in their community. Everyone wants resources for their community. The question is how do those resources get established or who who's providing the resources right. and then who has access to those resources right, what's right. the what's the distribution of those resources well you bring up a really good point i, I mean i think what um you have to understand is that uh, first of all you have to kind of study what are the branding forces behind these 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 projects like why is it that we continue to sort of rely on one certain type of typology uh, that has to do with like the city's charters, its histories, and so a lot of the time people don't really don't get into that. They don't really look at it. Uh, for example, um, one thing that LA can really rethink completely on the ground, just on the ground, is loitering laws. Mm. You know, um, in LA, we are still a frontier town that we've inherited this this frontier mentality of like when you came into a small town Main Street of a small like you know kind of like a you know, like spaghetti western town, you just kind of like just show up. Loitering laws were installed so the strangers could just, you know, clear out quick mm-hmm. or do their business. So it's, it was it was like a very... Boomerism. It was like a very pure, concentrated form of capitalism. Absolutely. Where you just basically like get in, get out. Mm-hmm. Like you, do your business and clear off the street. But what's been happening with like recent um, and, and, and trends in global architecture is that fundamentally is that the relationship of the body to the infrastructure to the building mm-hmm. is sort of changing so if city if a city like los angeles got rid of loitering laws and actually encouraged people to actually use public, public space, space and dwell in it for as many hours they want for specifically like the incredible power orientation that la represents we will be moving towards a more cognitive architecture like in other words like they would actually deregulate like the the, the these um, behemoths or albatrosses which are these uh, 
cognitive parks that you see at Menlo Park or mm -hmm. like at Facebook campus or Microsoft. You know, you, you're looking at these, these They're uh, structures. They're basically POPSs, privately owned public spaces. Well, but, but beyond, beyond the, you're politicizing the, the space that way, but what this actually goes beyond that. Mm -hmm. it, it actually, what they are is they're actually camps. Mm. And but the, but for a very certain class of people, and the thing is that like what I think will be very successful for Los Angeles and cities like the Bay Area or even like Bakersfield, is that they invested in the knowledge economy and its products to actually create a city that is actually uh, pulling in all of the amenities that say you see organized at Menlo Park, for example. And they, what this would do is then you don't need to like be busting creatives into like you know the concentration. You know, of like that's what happens. For example, you've heard of these people in San Francisco pissed off at the buses. Oh yeah. man! Well, the, 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 obviously, because those people actually, what sh they should be doing is investing what, in the infrastructure, in the infrastructure of that's that right. one city. And then, so, yeah. in other words, spread all of the services that are inside Menlo Park mm -hmm. through a through a you know city planning or you know sort of value chain. Yeah. where you could see this sort of organized. So, like to come back to that is when you you're looking at this moratorium lifted on loft building. That's it, it. It's it was a great idea, I believe, to have lifted that. But what has happened is the imagination for the typologies to that could come after that that ban has lifted, has just reverted to a very specific one layer of architecture. Can you yeah. tell me how? Can you kind of walk me around the word typologies? You've used it a couple times, and I, oh, okay. I, I have an under. I have a general understanding, but I would just kind of want to get a better understanding of how you're using that. Oh, yeah. Let me clear this up. Uh, I mean, it, it, it may seem strange. It's just it's more like in design and architecture. This is something to describe the form or in, in, or the manifestation of the form that the house or building takes. So, for example, in, in this part of the Single LA family in, dwelling. Exactly. Industrial type complex. Type one and then type two. Loft, type three, exactly. Okay, uh, mixed great. use yeah, retail okay. space. So that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, exactly. one Santa Fe, right? Exactly. Yeah. Totally mixed use retail and exactly. residential so, space, right? Then, exactly. So yeah. therefore, okay. it, so therefore what I'm saying is like the, the imagination for the typologies that could actually be designed in, after they lifted the moratorium could have Much been freer. really interesting places, yeah. you know, that actually could have actually been more mixed use mixed. green space, you know, right. mixed use yeah. residential green space. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I get so, it. so, so in, me, in yeah. a way, it's almost like uh, once they lifted the moratorium on loft building, they could have done, you know, the lofts, the retail, rooftop gardens, um, you know, possible like co-working spaces and, you know, mid floors or sure. just whatever. Well, I mean, I, also another thing I want to clear up is that, okay, like, uh, I mean, people have... People more or less on the cultural left, uh, what they have is they built a kind of like a notion that gentrification is bad. I want to clear up that that I don't really want to start off by actually saying it is bad because the thing is that there's a there's 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 a human right for human settlements everywhere, even the states. You know, so when people have mobility from across the across the United States to find a place to live, I think that that's great. Right, it's it it's fine. Of course, right. And then yeah. at, at the same time, at the same time, it's very important to to point this out that you know the first wave of people who quote unquote gentrify, what what they what they actually do is that the actual local residents usually receive a lot of the economy that comes in from the first wave. What happens is then is when the, you have now the settlements that begins this new politics as mm -hmm. to how to actually create a transfers. 
Right. And what 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 would mean about gentrification is I guess what I'm just I'm like just working out of my head right now is that is basically you're just seeing the power orientation shifted of what the previous neighborhood was to like now these newcomers. Mm -hmm. And so this is actually important. You know, yeah. and I, I, I just want to keep it within uh, a notion that gentrification is actually something that the city has to look at as policy to really rethink, for example, like how to create, say, a new value chain mm -hmm. for this transition. For example, uh, investing in the retention of classic businesses who qualified. I don't know if they, if you want to keep a certain amount of yeah, or investing in an architecture that's been there for an amount of time that gives exactly. the neighborhood its its, its quality, identity. Its yeah, identity. and the um, you know it's complicated because also you bring up this notion of investing. I mean, I'm thinking about public housing and um, issues that have been going on in public housing in the city of LA, you know, I mean, really, it's, I'm not the person to talk to. It's really Don Ryan, who's the person to talk to about that, um, with renters rights, but it's, um, you know, issues of these neighborhoods when they are, when the balance of power shifts, as you're saying, what happens is the people who are, who the neighborhood becomes unaffordable for a certain class of people and people who've been there for a long time, or sometimes those people can capitalize on it if they want to leave the neighborhood, but maybe they don't want to leave. And then it becomes difficult for them to stay because it becomes, uh, you know, uh, it, it becomes unaffordable. Right. Um, and they're, the level of housing that goes in during these waves of gentrification is like extremely high rent. So mm. these are issues where, you know, they're cultivating to a very specific class of people. And that's where you get like classes of racist elements. You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page to find out more. Now back to our conversation with Nancy Pop and Hugo Hopping. Yeah, I, I Nancy, I, I actually want to what um kind of bring it back to the artwork because I mean we're both artists and I don't want to give the impression that now because I'm in architecture or doing design, I'm somehow basically sort of like switching hats. I don't believe in these sort of intersections, but it's fundamentally art. So can you um, just ground it back to the work you're doing? Yeah, the I've done a couple of different projects lately. One that's really interesting is I had a, a, a show in a commercial gallery this summer, a, a Deb Cloud and Man space, um, Cloud and Man in Culver City. And the work was mostly uh, photographs that I've been taking of construction sites that are potential sites for interventions for me, mostly uh, Los Angeles, the Broad Museum, uh, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, uh, a couple of uh, developments in the east side of LA, and then a couple of buildings from the Dallas area from uptown when I was there in March for the Dallas Biennial. But more specifically, can you can you speak about what the process is between the work? Because mm -hmm. it's not just the not you, just the photographs. Yeah. It's not just you scaling one building. There's something happening. Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 looking at different sites, different places where areas where areas are being redeveloped. Mm. You know, like in, when I was in Dallas, I I'll tap into or start having conversations with people who are from Dallas 
or who have lived there a long time and I'll say, how has this area changed? What's been happening with the neighborhoods here? Uh, where are some areas where you're seeing a lot of construction and what is it for and what's being displaced? And so then they'll target certain neighborhoods and they'll give me their feedback as, you know, as residents, usually long-term residents. And then I'll go and start investigating those areas and ask some questions like, what is this development for? You know, uh, how long is this project slated to go? What's being, you know, moved off? There's a the area that I ended up performing in in Dallas is an area called Uptown. It's just north of this large downtown area that's already fully developed, and then um, a huge kind of like art center where the Dallas Museum of Contemporary Art is. And right next to this area that's being developed, there's this huge condominium complex going up, like a mixed-use retail condo complex. And there is a village, it's called uh, Little Mexican Village, and it's basically these small A-frame clapboard houses that are still there. There's a few of them are, are preserved, a little bit like Heritage Park in L.A., where they took the buildings off of Bunker Hill and moved them to a site off of the 110 freeway as a kind of you know gesture of preservationism. And um, so they've done a little bit of that in, in Dallas, where they have this section of town that's been slated a, a kind of a, a landmark and there are these single family dwellings, small homes um, where the original Mexican, you know, people were living there, the, the immigrants who come from Mexico established their families. And it's kind of amazing to see this juxtaposition happening in different cities all over the place. Um, it's it's interesting because my gallerist and I are going to go to Miami next month, which is going to be a little bit of a research trip for me. Um, we're interested in possibly looking at a construction site there to where I can stage an intervention in conjunction with the fairs, which I think I'm not sure about this yet. I mean, I have some ambivalence about it, but I also am really, I mean, Miami is a really interesting history, especially in the last 40 years. And, um, just wave after wave of money coming in from different illicit sources or, you know, sources that are illicit, but then become uh, legitimized and invest in the infrastructure. But then the infrastructure becomes extremely privatized. And, you know, so it's... And it's also going to be underwater in 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, parts of L.A. will, too. So no kiss Santa Monica goodbye. Um <laughs> So, or Mar Vista, the Bologna wetlands, not a good idea, huh? Um, <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. So it's interesting to start looking at, you know, sites there, and, and I'll be photographing a lot, and I'm doing the same thing for Miami now. I'm meet, trying to meet with people or talk with people who've been established there for a period of time, and get you, to know the area. And can you tell us, like, what the performance aspect Yeah, is? I was about There's, to say, we, should, then, we yeah. shouldn't make, but let then people also, think that they're just a bunch yeah, of just research. Photographs. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no. but then also how, because... Um, the Cloud and Man show, besides the fact that you perform on site, the Cloud and Man show, beside, uh, you had these images that you intervened in, mm -hmm. like, on the picture plane. Yeah. But then also you had a kind of a performance in the gallery that I feel like reenacted some of the... You know, the site performances, yeah, on-site performances you were doing. And, so. and Ugo and I talk about this, too, when we were looking at my work together the other week, is, you know, there's this interesting tension between, you know, the performance is an action that happens in real time where I actually go in and I trespass, 
and I break into a construction site and then I free climb the, the scaffolding and the scaling and I leave um, a trail with a material called mason line, which is an architectural material. It's used to site level and plumb and it's bright, bright orange, very typical construction color. So I tie that to sections of the building as I move so that it instead of reinforcing the horizontal and the vertical aspects of the grid, it actually becomes much more organic and kinetic and it changes and it, it subverts the grid inside the actual grid itself as this building is in this stage of development that it's transparent, it's open, it's the visible structure is, is formally there, you can see it. It's, there's all of the symbology that's going on for me when I'm intervening in a construction site. And then I'm putting my body at risk, I'm climbing, there's an endurance component, I'm a woman, I'm breaking into a very masculine kind of, um, you know, placeholder um, with construction workers. And so, and then the police thereby, I mean, this is all very deliberate because I'm dealt with very differently as a white woman than I would be as, say, a good friend of mine, Rafa Esparza, who's, you know, six foot three, Latino, and if he was in there, no question, he'd be in jail in five minutes. You know, <laughs> I have a buffer, so I can use that to my advantage to kind of push further. You know, it's like I'm trying to to use my privilege in a very strategic way. Um, so then I'll take documentation photos of these interventions, but I also take photographs of the construction sites in various stages of development, and I'll create what's called concept sketches, where I literally pierce the photograph with the mason line and I make a concept sketch of how the mason line may look when it's installed in the building as a result of my performance. And so that that intervention in the actual photographic plane you do prior to actually going to the site? I, no, I have to photograph the site first and yeah. then take a picture and then it's a, it's a, it's about the con, the concept of what this performance might look like or what sure. it's, it's investigating some of the more ideological aspects of intervening into this building and what that what that symbolizes. Mm -hmm. And then um, for the De Cloud and Man performance, there were several of these photographs that then the Mason line was was intertwined in the physical architectural space of the gallery. Like it yeah. literally was connected to the pictures and then in the space. So there was this link between the architecture of the gallery and the architecture of the construction site. L let me interject a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> what I think what Nancy's doing is really important. Uh, m many people in the art world did not know of what to do very for many years of the work of Gordon Mata Clark and he was going in there modifying these houses creating this you know circular uh, saw uh, you know cuttings into the structure and then of course uh, <clears throat> after this art historians started like looking at his work they were just fixated on the photograph for a long time and then there's just ongoing the battle and conceptual art about the value of the of the visual image the documentation the documentation of yeah. it. but if we get back to what Gordon Clark was doing with this uh, you know post-war uh, architecture or, or houses that he actually went in there and started chopping up apart he is was also beginning to sort of open up this idea of interrogating the structure through the through this intervention now, many years later, you have, what, 45 years later, you have Nancy now doing that, but on unfinished buildings. And it's sort of, a, it's sort of like a graffiti, if you want to sort of conceptualize it as that. But at the same time, it's actually cutting up the building in a new way at a, at a diagrammatic level. 
And so the, whether the concept sketch is on one level, cutting the building this way, or she's actually doing the performance, you are looking at this tension. And, 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 and therefore, she's, I see her very much in the continuation of what Gordon Marleclock was doing in that sense, for example. Yet he was not able to actually sort of take that project further. But he's monumentalized and lionized in the art world for doing these very heroic acts. And, and yet, it, I find it also coming to LA interesting that, well, more or less Nancy's doing the same. But I don't know from what I've been speaking to her if that wasn't necessarily the, her point of departure. You know? Well, it's amazing because we've not talked about this, but I have a real deep connection to the work of Gordon Meta Clark. And okay. I've talked about that, particularly in the statement for my gallery show. It's it, I, I put that into the work, oh, good. into the statement. And I had a chance to see some of his films that screened at the Mistake Room. Uh, and his, the director of his estate came out and introduced them. And, you know, I'd seen them in graduate school, but it was really great to talk to the, the person who's working on his estate back east and make a connection with her and, and look at these films and realize, you know, again, just how deep some of these connections between our, you know, my work and his work go. And so that was a real gift to get that connection to the estate and, and be able to talk to her about some resources that might be helpful for me with my work. And, you know, um, I do see that there's a heroic quality to his work, especially, but I also don't know, based on seeing his early work and talking to her, if that, that wasn't necessarily always his intention it was sometimes a result of the market or his collectors and um and i you know and i know that there's heroism in my work also but i'm seeking to undermine that at the same time you know it's like that it's like we talked about the panopticon with some of my work where i was climbing these light posts and i'm in this surveillance position and i can actually see everything and my resistance to actually taking a camera up there and recording that vision because it's not about recording it or representing it it's about um putting myself physically in that position for a moment and then breaking it, you know, and not holding that position because I think that that position needs to be upended, but it also needs to be repeated, (laughs) you know? So um, there is a heroicism, but maybe it's kind of an anti-heroicism or I'm not an, I don't see myself as like an anti-hero because I'm very privileged. I'm part of the art world and I, I have the ability to do these projects and I went to art school and, you know, but I am very, I try to be very, very critical of the, the structures that I'm operating within, like the commercial gallery, like going to investigate a site at Miami and possibly perform there. Um, so it's, I'm trying to be, and I'm also trying to see the link between doing these works, which are highly gestural and symbolic, and actually doing the activism on the ground, like with communities that are engaging in this struggle in the city where I live, where I've been pushed from neighborhood to neighborhood by a wave of gentrification, because I'm not a homeowner and I can't afford to buy a house. So I just have to keep moving further and further, and I'm watching this go, you know, watching this tide move and seeing neighborhoods that I love and histories of L.A. erased. I mean, I'm a fourth-generation L.A. native. I've had my own history erased here just because of the fact that Los Angeles erases its histories. It builds over its histories. Yeah, I was going to say, my, my, my dad was born in Hollywood, and, uh, and, and I, I was asking him the other day, I'm like, would you move to Hollywood again? And he's like, no, I just... I, I just don't recognize that place. No kidding. I mean, I, yeah. I don't rec- I live very close to where my great grandfather was on the last horse drawn fire brigade in Los Angeles County. Yeah. Whoa. Which was right on like where the 
Sunset Boulevard Bridge goes over Glendale Boulevard right there by like Echo Park Film Center. No, I, and you know, and I have pictures of him, you know, on the last horse-drawn carriage, <clears> and then that was it. Then they mechanized, and that's where his station was. And I'm like, I'd never know. You know, curiously about LA history. I mean, it's just so cool to hear that yeah. that part because uh, my grandfather, uh, Forrest Hopping Senior, you know, because my dad's in the middle, but. Uh, he uh, <laughs> he was uh, hired as an art director for uh, throughout the early part of the '60s, late '50s, to actually um, redevelop over a street. Oh man! Because my grandfather actually, what he would do is uh, he would um, he actually was a, um, an interior decorator for movie stars. Like he did Lawrence uh, Lawrence Olivier's house and <laughs> Betty Davis's house, and so he was this guy in Hollywood that was hired on this level and so. My grandma, they had, they had like the whole little sort of studio. And, uh, and of course, from that process, he he was hired to to do the Overa Street because he's also part of like these, you know, <clears throat> people that would really love going to Mexico. And so he had a right. really great deep appreciation for colonial Mexico. And so he would bring a lot of this stuff back to the, to the States. And, and therefore, he was asked to do that. So... It's this aesthetic connection, but, but yeah, but yeah. it was interesting because from the discussion is like all of these, the you know the, the the fire departments and all this this stuff they've all have gone through like these different versions of negotiating how they want to represent, mm -hmm. like you know California and their structures, you know, mm -hmm. and then of course at the same time I mean everything is just so constructed, you know it, it, that 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 it's impossible to tell. We know that everybody knows this about the authenticity of LA, but. At the same time, we don't know how to deal with all of these erasures, right? The erasures that just make it so difficult to keep this like lineage or make the connections, you mm -hmm. know. So you're constantly remaking the connections. It's like constantly retraining, you know, um, constantly retraining students. No, you know, but I mean, like coming I, I, through. My dad told me very turnover. clearly. He told me very clearly, like when he was a kid in the in the forties, because my dad was born in what in thirty seven. Mm. So it was in the forties that were. Or, or yeah, late forties, he drove to Mexico with his dad so they could break. Because back there was a Bank of America over a street. I don't know if you remember. It was like right on the corner of Maine, mm. and and it was like the it was like the it was neighborhood on the back, outlet. Kind of it's the, the back, back side, yeah, yeah, the back side, right open to the main square, you know. Yeah. So or the main plaza there, you know. So so, <laughs> he uh, he actually went and bought basically a bunch of. Uh, of like discarded like revolutionary weapons from the 1910 to 1920 because you could still buy these stocks in the 40s like, yeah and so he they actually, were around like in like yeah, resale stores exactly or, you could like, just go there and just pawn buy a shops bu and, bunch of like yeah you know, rifles and like you know they had like incredible so he brought these back right but he of course he couldn't come through customs into the states so <laughs> well, with a car full of guns yeah, yeah so he he put yeah so yeah yeah he just put these on the on, under the seat of like his chevy you know and like and then they passed through and then of course these were hanging at overall streets bank of america for years all the way through, like the beginning of the last decade, and then Some real, and like, again, tongue in cheek guy there. That's whatever really happened great. to him has just disappeared. So and then there's no trace as to where these things went. You know, Gene Autry, maybe I don't know. Who or knows? Like somebody else. They just basically raced. Well, I hate to say it, and I don't mean to uh, make things this whole wonderful conversation disappear all of a sudden, but I think we're we've uh, come to an end. So thank you so much, Hugo Hopping and Nancy Pop, for being on the people. Yeah, thanks. Guys. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank, thank you. you for inviting us. You've been listening to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. 
Our theme music is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Or you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page. We're going to go out with a song from Los Angeles band Scene Color. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram, and SoundCloud, and we'll put a link up on the People's blog. The song is called Recitame el Mejor. Recitame el mejor que te 